Well, we come tonight back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. Our section of scripture that we've been working on is verses 36 to 45 of Daniel 11, Daniel 11, 36 to 45. And our text here in Daniel 11 places us squarely in the end times, squarely in the consideration and contemplation and understanding of Antichrist. Verse 35 concluded with the end times as yet still future. And then as we moved into our section in verse 36, that we see the conclusion of this third kingdom of Greece and the final king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, moving from the scene in that third kingdom of Greece, being the one following Babylon and Media Persia. And in these five kingdoms, we've seen them described repeatedly in the book of Daniel. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 described in detail each of these kingdoms and in great detail, particularly in the second half of this book. And as well, not only did we see that, but in those main chapters, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, which are overviews of the other half of the book, we saw most importantly the presentation of the kingdom of God and of Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. So in verses 36 and 37 were our first point, a religious cessation, where we saw Antichrist ending the covenant with Israel and re-establishing the sacrificial system of Daniel 9 through that point. And then at the middle of the tribulation and the beginning of the great tribulation, exalting himself even above God, and all of this amplifying the text that we saw in Matthew 24, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in Revelation 8 and forward, really all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So great detail in scripture about these aspects that we're looking at. In verses 38 to 39, we're our second point, a ruler contrived, where Antichrist's rule is shown to us to be that of a military nature, and that is undergirded and supported by the efforts of Satan and his power. And 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9 and Revelation 13, 4 specifically confirming those details of this military aspect of the final kingdom on earth before Christ's return. And also that it is Satan who is the power that is behind this kingdom. <clears throat> then in verse 40, we started into our third point. Uh, again, the first point, a religious cessation. The next point, a ruler contrived. And then our third point, a realm contested. A realm contested. And you can see all of that in your prayer guides, in the bulletin, in the outline section of, uh, for our message. And here we address the three kings referenced in verse 40, which were the king, which actually began in verse 36, and then the king of the north and the king of the south. So the king of the north, the king of the south, and the king of verse 36, who is Antichrist. And you can go back and refresh yourselves on how the text confirms those different aspects. Now, the other kings, the king of the north and the king of the south, are not the same reference to those same titles that we see back from verses 5 to 35 of chapter 11, those that are representing the Ptolemies from the south and the Seleucids from the north. Those which are historical from our perspective because all of them occurred from the death of Alexander the Great all the way through to the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes in 167. So we look back on these specific details of those incredible 31 verses from Daniel 11:5 to 35 and we now see the historical fulfillment and the amazing accuracy which came forth in Daniel's detail of that prophetic text which he gave. 
So what we do see then in Revelation 11, or excuse me, in Daniel 11 and 40 with these repeated titles, King of the North and King of the South, is that it is not the same familial lines of the Ptolemies from the South and the Seleucids from the North, but it is rather the geographic regions that are being represented in similar fashion. And that makes total sense to us. We remember Israel is the center and we've elongated that point repeatedly and I know you know it well. So when they talk about that, they're speaking of these regions to the south of Israel and to the north of Israel. We also elaborated uh, last time on how verses 43 and 44 are further confirmation of these details and that those verses, that is 43 and 44, represent fulfillment of Daniel 7, 8, where Antichrist first defeats those three kings. And these are the kings of the north, south, and east. So verse 40 describes the methodology of his warfare, which may be, but is not necessarily a representation of modern warfare. That is, it may very much be the case that the actual warfare that occurs In the end times, in the tribulation, in the second half of the great tribulation, is more of a hand-to-hand, horse-to-horse, chariot-type warfare because of all of the catastrophic events of the first half of Revelation that could render modern warfare completely inoperative. When we think of all that happens with the earthquakes and with the movement of the sun and the moon and we think about the complexity, we think about the fighter jets that are out there and we have uh, some men who have served in our military, some who have even been fighter pilots and you think of the complexity of these aircraft, um, if all of a sudden the moon and the sun are no longer functioning in the fashion which they have throughout all perpetuity, I can see how that could cause some problems with those devices and perhaps many others. So whether or not it's modern warfare, methods of tanks and, and uh, jets and bombs, we don't know. But there is at least the possibility that it could be exactly what it says. Time will tell. And Lord willing, and uh, as we know from Scripture, that will not be something we'll have to endure, which is a blessing. But uh, we will see what that all looks like as we understand those times further unfolding. Verse 40 concluded with an overview of Antichrist's conquests of many countries. And it's interesting that that is the same structure that we saw for verse 36. Remember? Verse 36 is an overview of... Of verses 36 to 39, particularly verses 37 to 39. Verse 40 now serves as an overview of everything that will follow in verses 41 to 45. So we have a parallel structure, which when we see those things, then it helps us understand the logic of how the scripture is written and how it's been given to us. All of this you can go back on our website and listen to the details of these aspects. What I want to ask before we move on, is everybody clear on what we've addressed with respect to these individuals? Particularly, do you understand how the text is describing three separate kings when it talks about a king of the north, a king of the south in verse 40, and then the king in verse 36, which is different. Very important that we have that foundation underneath us as we move ahead. Uh, Everybody understands about the context of Antichrist. How up to verse 35, we had a future reference, and now all of a sudden we're in the present end times discussion, as verse 40 told us. We saw there in verse 40, at the end time, the king of the south. So now, verse 35, the end times are still coming. Now we're in them. So we've left the discussion of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the wicked ruler of the Greek dynasty, the final ruler. And now we are speaking about the final wicked human ruler who is the Antichrist. Everybody got that kind of dialed in. Okay, if you don't, please throw your hand up. Uh, Don't throw something at me because I'm not quick enough this evening. I might get hit. So... 
Let's continue on then with our title, The Beginning of the End, and our theme, which is four features confirming for you the details of Christ's return. Four features confirming for you the details of Christ's return in each of our four points. And we continue on then with our third point, a realm contested. Let's read our verses just to familiarize ourselves with it again, beginning in verse 40 of Daniel chapter 11. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many kings, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. And it is that structure in verse 40, with him and against him, that help confirm for us that there are three different entities that are being described here, and not two. Verse 41 continues. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Verse 44, but rumors from the east and from the north will, bestu- will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Now, we've discussed verse 40, so we continue on from that overview statement of Antichrist and his conduct to verse 41. And in verse 41, we see Antichrist entering the beautiful land. Who can tell me what the beautiful land might be? Yes, Israel, exactly. You, I, I, I heard several of you, you know, you always are just a little hesitant, aren't you? To kind of jump there, Israel! Uh, That's me, I do that. And then I'm usually wrong and I'm like, oh. Yes, you're right. It is Israel. The beautiful land is Israel. And we see that uh, uh, described for us, literally in the Hebrew, it is the land of glory. The land of glory or glorious land. And this again is of course referencing Israel. This is the exact same phrase that we see used in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9 and Daniel 11 and 16. Also referencing Israel. The entry into Israel is specifically addressing Antichrist's military conquests. That's what this section, 40 to 44, is all about. It is a realm contested, and it is Antichrist coming back into Israel. He's already had a major presence inside of Israel. Remember, Antichrist is of Jewish descent. And we saw that repeatedly in our previous points. And he has already made a treaty with Israel. And that treaty was to establish, to reestablish the Mosaic covenant and worship in Jerusalem in what will become the third temple. We've had the first temple, Solomon's, the second temple, which we could call Zerubbabel's or Herod's, both the same structure. Herod just did a, a major remodel and poured a whole bunch of gold into and onto it. And then the third temple will be the temple yet to be built, because is there a temple there today? No. Two religious buildings, but they have nothing to do with Israel which is a a whole nother discussion about the geography and tremendously fascinating because everyone says, oh, there's just no way this can happen. When you look at the geography of the Temple Mount, and know this is in my notes and hopefully we'll get back someday to where we're supposed to be tonight, but the, the geography of the Temple Mount is such that per, you know, the, the temple is not a huge building. You know, it it, it is, it it is basically a, a 20 by 40 uh, building and so and of course those are cubits so we're talking about a, a 30 by 45 uh, building uh, 30 by 60 building rather and um, you know this this building would easily fit on the current temple mount in the 
northern end of the Temple Mount, where uniquely and amazingly, because there's stuff all over the Temple Mount, and there's this one big open space. If you've been to Israel, you've seen it. In fact, there is one small cupola in this northern end of the Temple Mount, and it is also interesting that the Temple Mount has almost a uniform set of pavers upon it, large rock stone pavers, which of course have been rebuilt multiple times since the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Romans. But this one section of about, uh, I'm guessing around a six to seven foot diameter round or octagon shaped cupola has a different pavement type in it. And it's also interesting that if you take the position on the Mount of Olives through the Golden Gate and to the location where we believe Christ was crucified on Calvary, which is now underneath the Catholic Church, and you make a line, it goes right through that point. So you have a line that goes right through this seven-foot cupola with these different stones and a space that would be almost identical for the Ark of the Covenant. Is that where it stood? I don't know. Is it absolutely perfect with where it would sit in the temple? And is there room for the temple around it? Absolutely. Will the Ark of the Covenant be back? No, it will not. But the temple could be rebuilt right now on the Temple Mount without having any impact on the Golden Dome or the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, that would take pretty much uh, an act that even our, our wonderful and harmonious uh, American Congress and Senate can't accomplish together, but that's exactly what we believe Antichrist will accomplish with his treaty that allows the reinstatement of the Mosaic Covenant as he professes himself as the Jewish Messiah, which also phenomenally, and I didn't, I saw it at the end of some reading this afternoon and I didn't write down the reference, but Christ makes a statement that you will not accept uh, my name, but you will accept the name of another. Could that indeed be him referencing the Antichrist, who they will accept? So he comes in and somewhere back in our section in our text, we see this aspect of, of um, the return of Antichrist to Israel. He's been there before as the one who established the covenant at the beginning of the tribulation, then broke the covenant at the midpoint of the tribulation, which launched his exaltation as God, and he proclaims himself as God. He destroys and stops the sacrificial system which he allowed and reinstituted, therein obviously becomes an enemy of the Jews at that point and leaves and now is coming back to the beautiful land as their conqueror. And of course, this is the role that he fulfills in all of the places that he goes. So he comes back and he has this conquest after that previous presence in Israel and his self-glorification and the destruction of the system that he established. And now we have this military entry of him into the land. By the way, the cessation of worship occurs through the ability to buy or sell. Based on the number of the beast from Revelation 13. Yes, it does limit one's ability to buy or sell, but the focus is not the buying and selling. If you read through that text carefully in Revelation 13, it's focusing on worship. Antichrist wants all worship. And in order to buy or sell, you have to take that mark to acknowledge yourself as a worshiper of him. So, very unique of the connectivity that we're going to see throughout this text. And particularly tonight, so many things come together in that understanding. So amidst any Christ's military conquest of Israel, many will fall, as verse 41 tells us. The New American Standard has countries in italics because it's not in the original Hebrew text. The Hebrew actually reads, and a multitude were led to stumble. 
either this is a reference to their physical deaths or perhaps more severely their spiritual destruction in obeying Antichrist and his commands regarding buying and selling and demands that none worship the true God. This is Antichrist's whole perspective. Yes, he is on a military powerhouse to consume and to control everything. And through Satan and through the removal of the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit, he will be given that military authority and that victory. His goal is not military authority. His goal is to usurp God. And to proclaim himself as God. And he has, at this point, already done that, as we've seen earlier in our text. So amidst this, then, Edom and Moab and the foremost of Ammon are spared. What's happening here? Here's another little twist in our text. Some say these are referencing countries that are simply out of the way. And so they're not included in Antichrist's wrath and rage and conquest because they're little countries out of the way. Where are these? Where is Edom? Where is Moab? Where are the Ammonites? They are in modern day Jordan on the western edge of Israel. So this is the, the geographic location. And some would say, well, because they're out of the way, Antichrist didn't care about them. Well, his only care is about himself and his empire and himself being exalted as God. Nothing would be too small or too remote. He's going to take everything under his conquest and conquer it all. And random and unimportant regions would not be so specifically indicated in our text unless there was more importance than some out-of-the-way countries that were going to be ignored. Others, in answer to that, say these have always been countries that are enemies of Israel, and that would be true. And so Antichrist is already allied with these countries, and this also could be true. But the answer doesn't lie here. The answer lies, of course, in our Bibles, in the book of Revelation. And it's in Revelation 12, 13 to 17. Would you turn there with me? Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Yeah, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13. I want to go and look at a few of these texts that focus us on what's being spoken about In these three little countries that border Israel. Revelation 12, beginning at verse 13. Follow along in your Bibles, please. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What's going on here? How does this tie to our text to Edom, Moab, and Ammon? Very simply, Scripture tells us in Matthew 24, Jesus says, as he is talking about the end times, that the people who are in Israel must flee. The one who is on the housetop is not to stop and get his coat. The one who is in the field is not to return to his house. Woe to the woman who is nursing in this time, for it will be a time of great tribulation such as has never been before. Times and times and half a time are specifically referencing in Revelation 12, the second half of the tribulation, the three and a half years, time, times, 
and half a time, three and a half years, 42 months. And what we are seeing here is Israel fleeing out of Judah, out of the land of Israel proper, into the wilderness. Where do we think of when we think about the wilderness of Israel and John the Baptist and Jesus? Across the Jordan, isn't it? To the east, into modern day Jordan, into the west, into Edom and to Moab, into Ammon. These are the areas that we see that Israel will be fleeing. And what's being spoken about here is not Antichrist's connectivity and alliance with these countries, although that may be the situation. And he may be, Antichrist may be sparing their destruction, but it is because God is divinely ordaining and keeping the armies of Antichrist out of this area so that his chosen people can flee to this region and have protection. So this is clearly God's divine plan. We see this discussed specifically, and I want to read you those texts in Matthew chapter 24, where the Lord tells us in the what we term as the Olivet Discourse, his teaching to the disciples on the Mount of Olives after the Last Supper. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verses 15 to 20, we read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is Antichrist stopping the worship at the beginning of the great tribulation, exalting himself as God and sacrificing illegitimate animals on the throne and, or excuse me, on the altar and in the temple. So when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So we see that these references are not random countries of no importance. They are not countries that Antichrist decides not to go into because he's in alliance. They are countries that God has specifically designated would be a safe haven for his people. And that's what we see talked about in this text in verse 41. In verse 42, Antichrist conquest continues into Egypt and into other countries. And in verse 43, this will bring to him great treasures and wealth, and he will further conquer other countries of North Africa. And Antichrist will conquer all of these regions, which are those that are under the control of the king of the south, from verse 40. Egypt is that primary region that has been uh, antagonistic to Israel and is immediately to her south. Libya... And Ethiopia are those regions that are adjacent to and around Egypt. So this is North Africa. This is all the territory of who is referred to as the king of the south back in verse 40. And the phrase at the end of verse 43 will follow at the heels that of the Libyans and Ethiopians. That's an indication of the submission of these regions to Antichrist and confirms for us what we see in Revelation chapter 17. I want to bounce to Revelation 17. If you've still got a bookmark in Revelation 13, that'll be easy for you to get to. And in Revelation chapter 17, we see this very thing going on and we see this aspect of, of how there is this transition of this submission. 
When we look at Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 12, we read the following. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So when we see Libya and the Ethiopians in submission, that is, at his heels, those rulers, or particularly the king of the south, is yielding his authority so as to fulfill the authority of the beast. Let's back up because this is a terribly important chapter with respect to Daniel 11. Let's go back to verse 1 of Daniel 17. Verse 1 of Daniel 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Okay, we have the introduction of this great harlot. This harlot is not an individual, but it is uh, the world system of idolatry that is being referred to in terms of immorality. This often happens in Scripture. We've seen it in Daniel, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Jeremiah, and we see it in Ezekiel, where horrific idolatry, worship of false gods, is listed as immorality or adultery. Why is that? I believe it's because of the parallel nature of idolatry and immorality. Those engaged in immorality become consumed in that sin such that they can see nothing clear around them and they are pursuing it even to their own demise. What do I mean? Genesis chapter 18 and the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah as they're pursuing the angels that come to Lot's home. And the angels strike them blind and yet still they are grasping for the door to try to get to these angelic beings to have inappropriate, inappropriate, immoral relations with them. That is what I mean by the blindness and the ridiculousness of those pursuing immorality to their complete destruction and no care. So that's the same thing that happens with idolatry. These people are pursuing false gods and they're doing so to their own destruction and no care about it. No consideration, even though God has written in their hearts who they are, will they stop and consider the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has created them. So this is the great harlot. Continue on in verse 3. And he carried me away, John, in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and stones and pearls, having in her hand the gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of immorality. And on her head a name was written, Pay close attention to this as we get to it shortly. On her, on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When, her, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. So now we've seen this great harlot... And now we are seeing further description of this system of idolatry that represents immorality and is so described in these terms of one who dresses herself in verse 4 in fine clothing and, and showing much wealth, purple and scarlet, gold and stones. And yet in her cup is this gold, or in her hand is this gold cup, but it is full of the abominations of her immorality. And, and it speaks about the blood of the witnesses. All those who have been led astray by this false system. Those who have been martyred. And those who have been, have been brought apart from the truth of Christ and what he's done. 
Verse 6 ends, and when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And verse 7, and the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So now there is a beast that this woman, who is the system of harlotry, is riding upon. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. What in the world is that speaking about? This is talking to us as we see in Revelation 13 and elsewhere in scripture of Antichrist who will suffer a fatal wound and be resurrected and continue on in greater strength and with greater acclaim and desire and attraction from the unsaved immoral world because this one has been raised from the dead. So when you see those phrases that he was and is not and is about to come, it's talking about his former existence as Antichrist, his death and he is not, and his about to come in his resurrection. And he's about to come, verse 8, out of the abyss and go to destruction. This is what we see at the end of verse 45. And those that follow, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Who are these five kingdoms that he is speaking about when he references this text. These are the five kingdoms that have been proclaimed for us of Assyria, of Babylon, of Media Persia, of Greece, and of Rome. The fifth kingdom is the one that is So this is the fifth kingdom that he speaks about that is ongoing in our text. And he further says that um, five have fallen, one is and the other is yet to come. The one that is, is Rome. The one that is yet to come, when he comes, he must remain a little while. This is the kingdom of Antichrist that he is speaking about will come. And he continues on. Uh, they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. What does that mean? The seventh kingdom is the kingdom of Antichrist. He is also an eighth because he is killed and brought back to life, thus that he serves in a seventh and an eighth capacity. So that's what's being spoken about in these verses. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. These are the, seven, the same ten kings from Daniel. And, but they receive authority or the ten horns. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. That is a short time through the second half of the tribulation. They have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. We've read these, verse 14. They will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those who with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. They are those who have succumbed to the harlot's false system of worship and her immorality and idolatry. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God is put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. 
So we have this woman who is the great harlot, who is riding initially on the beast, which is Antichrist. And yet at the end, we're going to see that the ten kings and the beast turn against this system. What's that all mean? Buckle up, we're getting there. So let's continue on. Keep your finger there. You'll want to turn back to those verses 14 to 18 of Revelation 17. But let's go back to Daniel 11 and 44. Verse 44 carries on the dialogue of a realm contested. And we see there in Daniel eleven forty-four. but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate the many. These rumors are likely the amassing of armies against Antichrist during his conquests of the king of the south and of Libya and Ethiopia. Because of these, Antichrist will go forth and conquer. Thus, these regions of the east and north, the north being direct connection to the king of the north in verse 40. So, the east, the north, and the south that south being Egypt and North Africa, references three regions and kings that Antichrist, the little horn of Daniel 7, will tear out per the root, per Daniel 7, 8, 7, 20, and 7, 24. And in the process, in his great wrath, he will destroy and kill many. Through this process, all the remaining seven of ten kings will give their power to him, as we read in Revelation 17 and verses 12 and 13. Our fourth and final point is a return and conclusion. A return and conclusion in verse 45, which reads, He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountains, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. What we see here is Antichrist's fortress is described as a tent, indicating that it's a portable capital. That should not surprise us. He is a military force that is moving around the world and conquering different regions. Considering his focus on warfare, this is exactly what we would expect, a movable central command. The final location is between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. If the seas, plural here, uh, are considered literally, we could perhaps understand them as the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. Those are the two C's most usually referenced in scripture. However, Tanner notes that the plural word for C's is also used of the Mediterranean, of the singular Mediterranean, in three different texts. Judges 5, 17, Ezekiel 27, 4, and in Jonah 2, 3. So he sees Antichrist's command central between the Mediterranean and Jerusalem. So he sees Antichrist's command central in this location. Clearly the beautiful holy mountain is again Jerusalem. Antichrist was once centered in Jerusalem during his covenant with Israel. We mentioned that. And after violating the covenant and stopping the worship, he departed. He went and conquered Egypt and the regions of North Africa. Then he went and conquered the regions of Syria to the north and to the east, as we saw in verse 44. And now he is back in Israel. As Daniel's 70th week closes, Antichrist distances himself from Jerusalem and seeks to destroy it. This is just what we saw in Revelation 17. The beast and the ten kings turned their attentions against the great harlot, which is a system of idolatry described as immorality, which I and many other commentators believe to be Jerusalem. So the mystery of Babylon the Great is not Babylon at all. It is the wicked system that Babylon represents going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, but which is centered in Jerusalem. 
which is the center of idolatry. And it's here Antichrist and the kings wage war, per Revelation 17, 16. And Zechariah 12 to 14 describe this attack and this destruction of Jerusalem. In Zechariah 11, it's further hinted at that it is Antichrist that is behind this attack and destruction of Jerusalem. This is what Jeremiah 30 and verse 7 calls the time of Jacob's distress. But it is also added that that he will be saved from it. Listen to a couple passages in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2. Zechariah 14 and verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. This whole chapter is great to read. Let's go back and also look at Zechariah 13 and verses 8 to 9. Zechariah 13 verses 8 to 9. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and... They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say the Lord is my God. Remember when we looked back and we saw the nation of Israel fleeing to the wilderness. We also saw that there were yet still faithful people that were God's people in Jerusalem. In Matthew 24 and in Revelation 13. This text is speaking exactly about them. All of these texts, beloved, are harmonizing in this section of Daniel. You need to go and read, as I instructed you earlier this summer. Go and read through Zechariah, but particularly chapters 9 through 14. It is describing all of these details for us. The concluding point of our text, the beginning of the end, and our last point, a return and conclusion in verse 45, is that Antichrist will meet his end in Israel. Antichrist is slain by the Lord Jesus Christ. This, he will be slain without human agency. Per Daniel 8.25, the Lord Jesus Christ will slay him with the breath of his mouth. By the hand of Christ, per 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Jesus Christ will slay the Antichrist. Per Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21, the Lord Jesus Christ will slay the Antichrist. Per Daniel 7.11, per Daniel 2.34 and 35, the Lord Jesus Christ will slay the final kingdom and destroy it, which is Antichrist. And as Antichrist is destroyed, the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ will set up his kingdom and his temple in the beginning of the millennial reign. What an incredible picture these verses are. These verses harmonize and summarize almost every end times prophetic text in scripture. Their material we find nowhere else. The right understanding of the entire conclusion of the book of Revelation, Zechariah, many aspects of Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel are all brought to fruition in these verses. All of the specifics of Daniel's prophecy in 11.5 to 35, those now historic events that exactly detail each king, their sisters, their sons, and all that happens with them are given such specificity so that we will know that everything proclaimed about Antichrist here and in all of the text is absolutely accurate to the nuanced detail and that God has revealed it to us. Verse 36 to 45 
our antichrist's rise and demise. And all of it, beloved, points to one thing. The absolute certainty of the return and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth for eternity. And all of this to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed in every way. The depth of this information, Lord, will take us a lifetime to synthesize and to fully understand. Yet you have brought it together. You've helped us to see and we we want to yet understand yet more. Father, I pray that for myself and for each of my brothers and sisters, you would continue to open our minds and illumine to us these details. Father, we know we need to continue studying and reading and learning and just grasping your majestic plan. But how thankful we are, Father, that you've shown us. You didn't need to show us. It's only your kindness. It's only your love. It's only your understanding that we are weak and that we will ask and we will waver when we don't know. And so there's no reason for us to waver. For your plan is perfectly spelled out. Thus for now, Lord, our task is to grasp as best we can, but to obey that which is most clearly shown to us. That is in our need to follow and pursue you in holiness and righteousness, to pursue right living, to pursue obedience to your word, and to carry forth the greatest name that ever we will know. Father, to take to the world around us and with confident assurance as we have seen in this text to proclaim that Jesus Christ is coming again. Our risen Savior is coming back to remove the church, to deliver the full wrath of the Father along with the Father and Spirit upon this wicked earth and system and to carry forth His plan of saving those that are yet His, including reinstating His chosen people Israel. Father, may we proclaim this. May we boldly go forth to tell people that they must know Jesus. This is the only hope. Lord, it's the hope that You've shown to us. It is our greatest joy and peace. It is the greatest delight of our hearts. And Father, strengthen us now to realize that we would be in grievous sin were we not to share this message with others, therein being selfishly keeping it to ourselves. Father, we want to share Christ. We are weak in these efforts. We need your help. Lord, help us to resolve Now, in the quietness of our hearts, in the place of our seats, wherever you have us, that we would resolve that we are going to, with the next people you bring us before, speak of the name Jesus Christ. For it is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. And we thank you so much for it. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.